Okay, while you're eating, I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, what you do after SVR. So the learning objectives are how do you monitor patients after SVR, how good are our testing for fibrosis level after SVR, and how well do patients respond in terms of their hepatitis C and general inflammation. So, let's see if I did all right on this question. Which statement is false? DAA treatment of cirrhotics differs from non-cirrhotics. All DAAs can be used in decompensated cirrhosis. Treatment of cirrhotic patients stops liver decompensation. Liver decompensation is best measured by MELD or CPT. I think that's a one-hour recall question. And MELD and CPT differ in assessment of liver decompensation. So one of these is false, and which one is it? Please vote. Nobody's voted. Oh, they have? The magic of computers. Hands are better. Well, I don't know. I was just following along. Let's see if I can. It's it was there. Which one? No, that's not it. I don't know what happened. Somebody moved it. So you're answering a different question. He can't find it though. Gee, I beg your pardon, Roxy. No, that's not it. Oh, this one's it. This one's it. That one was it. All right, let's let's give up on the. That'll do. Okay. So. This is a difficult question because D, not all DAAs, this is the true question. And treatment of cirrhotic patients doesn't, doesn't stop liver decompensation in all patients. I guess I should have added that. So here's the case, a 44-year-old female with hepatitis C diagnosed 20 years ago. She used drugs but hasn't used for many years. And nor has she used alcohol. She has fatigue, loss of energy. She's on disability. She had a past history of an upper GI bleed. She doesn't know anything more about it. She's heard their new drugs and wants to be treated. So here are her labs, ALT44, AST68, bilirubin 2.7, albumin 3.2, INR 1.4, alpha-feta protein 24, creatinine 
white count three, platelets 82, HCBRNA 607,000, and she's genotype 1A. So she has cirrhosis. She's likely child's B. She can be treated with oral, oral DAAs as opposed to injections. She doesn't have portal hypertension. She needs an EGD or she needs screening. So here are her labs again. White count platelets. So which is not true? She has cirrhosis. She's likely child's B. Any old DAA will do. She doesn't have portal hypertension. She needs an EGD and she needs screening. I think I did better on this question. Okay. So it's true, it's false that she can be treated with any old DAA because it's someone's decomp. She has cirrhosis, she's likely child's B, she does have portal hypertension, she does need an EGD and she does need screening, but she can't be treated with the protease inhibitors and you heard that from Dr. Marks. So, you, we saw this picture, you can diagnose cirrhosis when it's really bad. We went through this earlier this morning. But on exam, she has spider nevi on her shoulders. She doesn't have ascites or edema. She doesn't have a pataspilanomegaly. So she's clearly not jaundiced. She doesn't have ascites. She's not confused. But the hints are that I talked about earlier, her AST is higher than her ALT which is the opposite of what you see in non-serotics. Her albumin is a little low. Her white count is low and her platelets are low, suggesting portal hypertension. So how do we assess severity of her liver disease? I think we talked about that earlier, a CPP or a MELD. So this is the child's Pew-Turcotte that I showed you, encephalopathy, ascites, bilirubin, albumin, and INR. And in her clay case, she doesn't have encephalopathy, she doesn't have ascites, her bilirubin is a wee bit elevated, her albumin is low, and her INR is normal, so that makes her a child's B. And sometimes when you just have the patient sitting in front of you, you actually can't tell that they're a child's B. You have to count, put it in the computer and count it. And then you can do her meld, and on her meld, her meld is 14, which would make you, oh dear, that's bad. And you may not have seen that just looking at her. So it's really valuable, I don't know if you have the QMed app, but to put in the meld, to put in the CPT, it just says, What's your creatinine? What's your INR? What's your bilirubin? Have you been on dialysis for the last week? And spits out the number. And you need a sodium also because they added sodium to the meld three years ago. And that helps in patients who have very bad ascites 
that may, as a cytage member I talked about earlier, initially you're diuretic responsive, then you're diuretic unresponsive, then you have hyponatremia. And so that's accounting for people who may have pretty normal or mildly abnormal INR bilirubin and creatinine, but you add the sodium and it really helps in predicting who's going to die before transplant. So here she is, Charles B and a meld of 14. So the question is what to treat her with since she's mildly decompensated. What is true? She's too far gone for therapy. All cause and liver survival is better after SVR. HCC will not occur if she has an SVR. She doesn't need endoscopy if she has an SVR. And all oral DRA, DAAs are not associated with liver decompensation in cirrhotics. So one of these is true. So everybody, most of you got the right answer that survival is better, and I'll show you the data. Cancer can occur. She does need an endoscopy. And as we said, some of the DAAs in particular, the protease inhibitors, can be associated with decompensation and shouldn't be used. So here's the data uh, on the left. This is in a meta-analysis of nearly 34,000 patients. So it's a great study that never really got published, and I don't know why. But other people have shown it subsequently. And on the left is the five-year risk of all-cause all mortality, five-year risk of death in those who had SVR in green compared to no SVR in red. So you can see overall, all hepatitis C patients, marked decrease in mortality if you have an SVR, especially if you're cirrhotic, and even more so if you're co-infected with HIV. And then on the right is the five-year risk of cancer. And I point out that it doesn't go away, so in green it occurs, but SVR markedly decreases it in cirrhotics and, and especially in co-infected patients. So. SBR does improve your chance of survival and your risk of developing cancer. And this is um, all-cause mortality. Another study from Bacchus at the VA in um, 12,000 patients, of whom 1,000 died, and you're much more likely to die if you didn't get an SBR. This is genotype 1, but it's also shown for ge all genotypes so the recommended therapy for um, treatment-naive patients with compensated cirrhosis is 12 weeks of Elbosphere and uh, Grisoprevir or GP or soft lead or soft Belpatosphere. And for decompensated patients, 
soft lead is fine. We did an EGD, showed mild portal gastropathy, evidence of portal hypertension. Ultrasound reported mo no cancer but a trace of ascites. So you might be able to add a point. But I think if you can't see it, if it's not significant, a trace is sort of like 0.5 rather than 1. She was started on 12 weeks of soft lead. At week four, she still had a positive HCV RNA. And I know uh, Dr. Sag showed you that that really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't predict outcome. At 12 weeks, it was undetectable, and she had an SVR12. But six months later, she was complaining of not thinking clearly, swollen ankles, and now she has moderate ascites. So, HCV treatment, 5 to 7% of cirrhotics decompensate each year. It may be subtle to diagnose uh, cirrhosis. You still have to screen for cancer. You still have to do an EGD. You have to monitor. And for child B patients, we usually say, especially if the meld is around 15, evaluate them for transplants because then you can have the discussion if they have a donor who could do a partial liver transplant, then you should clear the hepatitis C because they may not need it. If they don't have a donor, then you have the discussion is would they take a hep C antibody positive donor, in which case you wouldn't want to treat them till afterwards. And sometimes if you treat people whose MELD is under 20, you may drop the MELD and never get a transplant and be in what's called MELD purgatory. So it's quite a difficult discussion, so you need to have that discussion before you start treatment. So here's another way of looking at the risk of cancer on the left and liver decompensation on the right. It's lower than patients who are not cured, but it's still significant at 10 and 20 years, both cancer and liver decompensation. And the big argument with the DAA causing cancer was that we, with DAAs, we were treating much sicker patients that we were never treating with interferon before because you, it's contraindicated in anybody who is worse than a child's A. So we never treated child's A minus, B plus, B. Now we're treating these patients who have much a higher risk of cancer and the cancer was coming out. So it was true statistically but false when adjusted for all these other factors. So the, there are many uh, benefits of HCV cure, reducing mortality, reversing decompensation in most patients, reducing but not eliminating HCC, reversing cirrhosis in some patients, but not all, decrease in fibrosis, especially in patients who don't have cirrhosis. Decrease in fibrosis is, can be very significant. Patients can go from F2 to F0 on liver biopsy. Uh, has been shown in the past on interferon therapy. Remember, you can have cirrhosis if you have, um, you can reverse cirrhosis that's not cross-linked. So the textbooks say you can't reverse cirrhosis. 
But if your cirrhosis is not severe and the collagen fibers and fibers are not cross-linked, you can reverse that. If they're already cross-linked and set, you can't reverse that. And of course, as Christy talked about, one of the great benefits of cure is reducing the risk of transmission to others. So here's some uh, data from Jen Fleming and Nora Tarot looking at the benefit of DAAs because hep C used to be 50% um, or more of our transplant patients. But after, in the, DA, in the interferon therapy era, it didn't affect our whopping need for transplant for hep C because the majority of patients who interferon treat aren't the patients who are up for transplant. They're too sick. But once DAA came around, you can see that the number of liver transplants dropped off, the number of decompensated patients dropped off, but we haven't yet really seen a benefit in the cancer patients. So you, I think we have to wait. You know, I, Mike Sag showed you the data that cancer will peak at 2050. Well, maybe it won't. Maybe it'll go down, but it takes years for to see this benefit. So perhaps when we're looking at 2020, 2025, we'll see this going down. But it's quite profound in the number of patients who've gone down with decompensated disease, whereas NASH, which is our new favorite liver disease in America, continues to go up both in decompensation and overall, and look at the marked rise in the increase of cancer from NASH. So hepatologists will still have a job. We just change what the job is. <laughs> and, you know, NASH is a big deal in HIV patients. It's poorly evaluated and poorly monitored. We used to say, oh, it's just the protease inhibitors. Let's not worry about it. It's very clear HIV patients are catching up with the rest of America in getting metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, maybe related to drugs and HIV, central obesity, hypertension. This is all our population. Yes, Dr. Sack. So what do we do about well, the, the problem with NASH is we don't have a cure, right? So I said, I said to my patient last week, you know, the treatment for the metabolic syndrome is monitor get a good hemoglobin A1C, control your hyperlipidemia, um, control your blood pressure, and the treatment for fatty liver is diet and exercise. So the patient said, well, isn't there a pill? <laughs> you know, why would I try diet and exercise? All of us have tried it and failed, right? So I have a couple of patients who have achieved decrease in fatty liver, and you can measure that on the fiber scan with a controlled attenuation parameter, the cap says how much fat there is in the liver. Um, and one patient lost 40 pounds. His ALT went to normal. His cap went from over 300, which is severe steatosis, down to 240 or 250. I said, well, how did you do it? And he said, malignant exercise and diet. I mean, he really got into it, but it's a rare patient. And there are 
Now, a lot of studies showing diet and exercise does reverse fat in the liver, but it doesn't reverse, it goes back if you go back to being um, the couch potato. So we don't have enough data in HIV. All the data for HIV has come from Europe, and it shows a similar pattern to what we're seeing in non-HIV patients in the US. So it's unsatisfactory for patients. So what about extrahepatic manifestations? Well, this is a very nice study, and it's one of two or three different studies looking at the effect of SDR on diabetes. And this was prevention of insulin resistance. So on the left, they did HOMA IR pre and post treatment. And, these, and so this is the development of de novo insulin resistance. So they had to have no insulin resistance pre-treatment, and then they followed up. And you can see that we got rid of their hep C, but we didn't get rid of their poor lifestyle. And in those who didn't have an SVR, over 24 months, 17% uh, overall developed de novo insulin resistance compared to 7% of those who had an SVR, which is really quite remarkable. It was 384 patients, and the majority didn't have advanced fibrosis. Then on the right is a different study looking at the effect of SVR on the incidence of type 2 diabetes. So this was um, looking after SVR and following patients in months. And you can see not having an SVR had a much higher uh, cumulative development of type 2 diabetes, which was independent of age, whether you had cirrhosis and whether they had prediabetes at uh, baseline. This is nearly 3,000 patients, showing that hep C is a systemic in inflammatory disease, just like HIV. And when you reverse that in systemic inflammatory disease, you don't just have benefits in the liver, but you have systemic benefits. Now, diabetes and insulin resistance also has a liver component, but it's still quite remarkable data. And this is different data from Sue looking at renal and cardiovascular outcomes in diabetic patients. So on the left is um, the cumulative incidence of end-stage renal disease. So they followed diabetic patients who uh, were or had no treatment but had hepatitis C and diabetes. These are the patients who had no, had diabetes but no hepatitis C. And then the bottom one is the diabetics with hepatitis C who were treated. They couldn't tell us SVR because they weren't able to show that in the data. But look how remarkable the decrease. If you treat patients, the decrease in the development of end-stage <coughs> renal disease. And here, it, they uh, showed that you decreased also ischemic stroke. And their relative risk for end-stage renal disease treatment decreased 
to 0.16, so 84%. Uh, nearly half for ischemic stroke and about a third for acute coronary syndrome. So in, again, that if you eradicate that systemic inflammation, you don't just have ben liver benefits, but you can have cardiovascular benefits too. And this is a study looking at paired liver biopsies and looking at the area of fibrosis, so morphometric studies. This is uh, looking at area of fibrosis pre-treatment and post-treatment, and then looking at the uh, pre-treatment area of fibrosis, and then post-treatment either 0, 1, F, 1, 2, 3, or 4. And what you can see is in the majority of patients, the area of fibrosis on liver biopsy went down, in the vast majority, but it didn't, did increase in a few, and in some it was unchanged. And when you looked at the decrease in some, this is the, um, pl the plot showing you the difference, and it really is quite remarkable, the difference decreasing from F3 to F1, from F4 to F2, or from F even those who were cirrhotic got some benefit. So showing that it doesn't improve fibrosis in everybody, but in the majority you see an improvement. So what about your question about liver stiffness? So everybody does a fibro scan six months, everybody I know anyway, fibro scan six months after SVR, and they're all so happy that fibrosis has decreased markedly. But fibro scans are very, very sensitive to the ALP level. So if the ALP has gone from 60 to 13, the fibro scan will decrease markedly. So when you, if your ALP is over 100, it's not worth doing a fibro scan. If somebody has acute hepatitis C, their fibro scan might be 40 or 50. It's got nothing to do with fibrosis, it's inflammation. So inflammation falsely elevates your fibrosis level. Eating, food, when you eat, you increase the flow from your gut to the liver through the portal vein. So that increases falsely your fibro scan. So we say nothing to eat or drink for three hours. So one patient, her fibro scan was 11. I called her and I said, did you have anything to eat or drink? No. I said, well, your fibro scan's very high. It's very strange because a year ago it was 4.2. And she said, well, does yogurt count? So patients really, you have to say nothing to eat or drink. Maybe a glass of water is okay. Patients with heart failure, increased flow through the liver. If you have right heart failure, your fibro scan will be high. But it's not fibrosis. It might be, but it might not be. It might be just having cardiac congestion increasing falsely your level. Patients have very high bilirubin increase falsely. So you need to make sure who your patient is when you get a fibro scan. So this study looked at paired liver biopsies and liver stiffness. So here's the fibrosis stage, and here's um, 
over time. And you can see using um, ARPI, which is what um, Mike talked about, is a different way to look at, um, instead of a fibrous scan, it's done with ultrasound. The problem I have with ARPI is they don't tell you the level. They just give you a number and they don't tell you F0, F1, 2, 3, 4. Your ultrasonographers might be better. So they looked at patients um, in, the, in the empty bar, in the clear X uh, boxes, they, those are ones with SVR. And in the dark boxes are those who have current HCV infection. And I want to point out is that for every stage, the fibroscan is higher in those who have inflammation until you get to cirrhosis. So the idea being that ALT, the higher your ALT, you, the higher your ARFI. And that the values are lower in patients with SVR for, than chronic HCV for each stage of fibrosis. So it wasn't necessarily related to the fibrosis, but if you have inflammation as well, you have a higher fibroscan. And the long, what I don't show you there is the, the longer patients were from their cure, the lower their ARFI was. So we're going to need to define new ways of assessing SVR. Uh, no, say that again. New ways of assessing fibrosis after SVR. Non-invasive tests haven't been validated in patients with SVR. APRI and FIB4 use ASPALT. Suddenly goes to the team. It doesn't mean your fibrosis is reversed. Fibrotest and Fibrosure uses ASP, ALT, bilirubin. When that becomes normal, it doesn't mean you revert, you've reversed your um, fibrosis level. So the risk of underestimating the severity of fibrosis is very high if you're relying on the post-test results. So there have been a number of studies that I didn't put in in patients who had cirrhosis and they got a biopsy a year or two years after cure, and the fibroscan said they had F2, but their biopsy clearly showed cirrhosis. It was bland, they didn't have any inflammation, but they still had cirrhosis. So the problem with that is, if you say to a patient, you're cured, you don't have cirrhosis, you don't need screening, you don't need monitoring, that's dangerous. Yes? You want to determine who to monitor. You don't know. That's the problem. And so until we come up with better ways of doing it, we use the pretreatment fibrosis staging to monitor. And actually, elastography may be more useful to look at progression of liver disease rather than regression because regression is clearly so affected by the ALT. And of course, the fibroscan people never mention that. So how we follow patients, you assess their pretreatment fibrosis stage, showing again how important it is to know that. If they have low or F0 to 1, you just send them back to their PCP for monitoring of their other problems. 
They don't need monitoring for their liver. If they have advanced fibrosis, F3 to 4, they need long-term follow-up, surveillance for cancer and varices. And we have a large number of patients developing cancer after SBR. Presumably, many of those patients would have died because they couldn't have received any therapy 10 years ago. But now they've gotten over their hep C, but they haven't gotten rid of their cirrhosis. And if they're intermediate, we monitor them for progression to advance. Because FibroScan seems to be better at saying you had progression. We know it's not very good at regression. So all patients with pre-treatment cirrhosis should have a screening EGD. And you can't use this brilliant FibroScan under 20 and platelets over um, 150 because the FibroScan is maybe falsely lower. So you have to do at least one EGD. If it's negative and there's no go ongoing liver injury and you think they're cirrhotic, we do recommend an EGD every three years. But we actually have no idea when to stop. So expert opinion suggests if you've had two negative EGDs, you could stop then. But we actually, that's based on zero data. If there are small varices at baseline, but no ongoing liver disease, we do an EGD every two years. And we, I actually don't recommend you stop if you have varices, because that's sign of portal hypertension and uh, cirrhosis. So I think you need ongoing EGD. And if you have worsening portal hypertension radiologically, so you see splenomegaly, you see varices, you see ascites, or you see clinically spider nevi, then you repeat your EGD. So I think this is going to change. This is just 2018. Until we get more data, and probably in the US, we won't be the ones getting data. Probably it'll be in Europe, where they have huge cohorts and monitor them very, very carefully. What about HCV surveillance? We've talked about the natural history is about 3 to 7% a year from cirrhosis to HCC. And with SVR, it's much less, like 1.5% a year. And with DAA therapy, it's about 3 to 5% a year. And that's because we're treating older patients with more advanced cirrhosis that we could never treat before who have a higher risk for cancer. So it's still there. And these are some very nice data from the VA of 33,000 patients, of whom a third had an SVR. They had 100 new cases. And the incidence with an SVR, um, without an SVR, was about 1.3% a year, which is a bit lower than what we've seen in other studies. But when you had an SVR, it decreased it by 75%. And the factors that were associated with um, progression to cancer were having cirrhosis in the first place, which shouldn't surprise anybody, being older, so probably having disease longer, alcohol, being less old, and 
diabetes. And Hispanics had a higher incidence of cancer than Caucasians. So all in all, showing that we need to keep monitoring patients and we need to talk to them about ongoing alcohol use. So what are the liver-related health problems after a cure? You don't have hepatitis C anymore. Most of my patients aren't at high risk, so they're in the low risk of getting recurrent hepatitis C. But you do have to talk about the risk of recurrence and talk about harm reduction every time you see the patient in case they've changed. I had one patient who started using drugs age 60, and I asked her why, and she said, because I hadn't tried it. <laughs> so you need to ask. Fatty liver disease and the metabolic syndrome. You need to stress with patients, yes, you've had a cure, this is wonderful, but you don't want to develop diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, monitor your weight. Coffee appears to be associated with a lower risk of progression. Non-daily use of cannabis. Lots of studies have shown less than daily use doesn't appear to be associated with progression of disease. We don't have good data on daily use. Are there safe levels of alcohol? Probably not if patients have S3 or 4. They should avoid alcohol altogether. And remember that herbs and spices can be toxic. I live in California where everybody's on herbs and spices, and there are many toxins in herbal medications that aren't FDA regulated. And there are many uh, hepatotoxic, like hydroxycut, that people get at the gym to bulk them up and make them feel better. So in summary, there are many benefits of the cure that are both liver and non-liver related. People with F3 and 4 pre-SBR need ongoing monitoring till we come up with a better way of assessing it. Some people have gone and had a liver biopsy, so if they don't, if they're F2 on a liver biopsy and they don't have fatty liver and they don't have heavy alcohol, they don't have a reason to progress, perhaps those, those patients you could stop. But it's a pretty big ask to have patients have a liver biopsy after a cure. So you need to stage the fibrosis pre-treatment to optimally manage post-treatment. Concurrent alcohol and fatty liver places patients at a risk for future cirrhosis. And these patients need to be monitored for fibrosis progression. You should counsel healthy life practices for all patients and monitor for reinfection in high-risk Thank you. So, Marion, I have one quick question that I alluded to earlier. <clears throat> so, in terms of monitoring, there are those um, patients who don't have re new infection but just have a late, late relapse, like at a year, nine months. Do you, what do you do about so that? I do an SBR 12 in a year, and I don't know why, because I've never had anyone recur, but I've read about it. So you, you, do you wait? Do? So in other words, instead of checking 12 weeks after endotherapy, you just wait a year after therapy just to? Yeah. No, yeah. I check 12. And then? And then I check at a year. 
I usually do that as well. I usually do a 12 and a 24, or 12 and a 24. But um, I did just see a paper published on that, those low-level viremias that happen late. Like, they went back and they sequenced, well, first of all, some, like half of them went away. And then they went back if they had stored specimens and looked. And if they were low levels, often when they repeated it, they were undetectable. Like, I don't know, our lab at least has a little cross-contamination issues. Oh. So I wonder if some of those, like, low, those late... If someone comes back at, like, 2,000. Yeah, if someone come yeah. Back, comes back at 2,000 at week 36, I, I doubt they actually... I would repeat it again. Okay. And but I see. also think you need to sit the patient down and talk about reinfection because many patients won't bring it up. And I th it's critical that we pick up the reinfections and treat them, as Christy told us earlier. Yeah, I mean, the reason I asked is that you could almost say, well, what difference does it make if you're going to check it 12 weeks after endotherapy? Why not just wait till 24 weeks or something like that? And um, because I think if they if they're negative at 12 and then you get a later positive, it's usually a reinfection and they can be treated differently. So it okay. is nice to have that yeah. 12 weeks. That's especially negative. true in the co-infection population yeah. where there's higher risk of reinfection. Yes. Hang on, wait for Hold the up. mic. Um, so if you recheck them at let's say 36 weeks out and they do have a positive viral load, mm -hmm. how long do you wait to recheck that? Like, do you wait a week, oh, or no, do you wait I a month? That I would do immediately. I would just immediately okay. recheck it, because I would wonder, in my own experience, if that was actually a lab error, where, you yeah. know, you have someone whose tube is in this slot next to them that's a viral load of, like, 12 billion or something, yep. and it's, like, gotten a little bit. I've had three of these recently. Yeah, that's that, why that I'm happens. asking. So, I think... I would do that one immediately. Okay. And, and, and if, if it comes up And if it's positive, I would be suspicious of reinfection. And okay. So if it's um, like 100,000, you'd want an AC, you'd want a genotype to see if it yeah. was a reinfection. But if it's a diddly amount, yeah, I don't want to blame the lab. I've seen I've lower levels of viremia with um, intense counseling on the patient with what I deem no risk for reinfection. So... Yes, I, I just didn't, that's yeah. something I want to ask if contamination is possible. And one comment I guess we haven't said, I don't think, is that when you find someone who has reinfection, then you've got to start all over again. You want to redo the genotype because sometimes they might have originally had 1A and now they got 3. So what it makes, it's just start over again. And I think uh, if you're, once in a while there's cases where, you know, people miss their SVR 12 visit, right? So, and then they just come back at, and you and everything was looking good while they were on treatment. They were undetectable. You think they probably were cured. And people have looked at those like when they finally come back, most of them are cured. So I think if you see if someone misses their visit where they should have shown they were cured and then they come back a year later and they're viremic again, you know, there's actually probably a higher chance that they've been reinfected than weren't cured. So I would repeat the genotype. That's a situation where I will use resistance testing because if I see NS5A resistance there, I'm more suspicious it was a relapse than a reinfection. But if I don't, you know, I'm kind of thinking it was a reinfection. And so it just affects what you might use for that treatment is 
trying to figure it out. I think it's important to try to figure out, was this a relapse or was this a reinfection? And that, and that SVR 12 helps you, so if you can get it at all possible, it's good to get it. And would you do uh, phenotype before you did resistance? Oh, if it was a different one? yeah, that's true. Yeah, if it was a different genotype, you yeah. wouldn't need to do the resistance test. So any other follow-up questions for Dr. Peters from her talk? You make, is this on? Okay. So you're making me nervous. Um, basically, in my institution, uh, there's a, the bottleneck is getting somebody into GI. Uh, and the GI person is the only one who can order EGDs and, um, and doesn't have access to a fibro scan. So I'll do the fibro sure. And I figure, you know, I, you know, I'll do an, AF, um, uh, an alpha feta protein, and I'll do an ultrasound, and I'll do all that stuff. But then I would basically, if I got an F4, I would, and they're not decompensated, um, or excuse me, they, uh, they, yes, they're not, they're okay. Yeah. Um, I would just go ahead and treat them to essentially get a jump on it because they'd be done with treatment by the time they got to GI, and I thought I'm doing well. So, but I'm nervous because that's <laughs> the right thing. But I'm nervous because you said you needed to uh, get some of the stuff because on the F3s and the F4s, uh, you wanted stuff before that, and I I, I noticed. Uh, so maybe I misspoke, but if some if you have a patient who's cirrhotic by your testing and you're screening for HCC, you treat them for hepatitis C. The problem is you can't say you got rid of the cirrhosis. Right. So you set them up for GI and an EGD and it happened six months after their SVR, that's fine. Okay. Because you've still followed that algorithm. If there's zero varices, you could order it for the next three years <laughs> and check. Okay. And then, the question is, when do you stop? If you know they were cirrhotic before, so if you know they're cirrhotic with portal hypertension, you never stop. So if their platelets are low or they have varices, low white count, that patient has to be monitored for HCC and have an EGD monitoring for, var for varices. But say they don't have portal hypertension, they're the ones most likely to reverse after SVR. And how do we document it? And the problem is we have no way of documenting it because all our non-invasive tests rely on inflammation, which is gone. So you could document it by rebiopsying, which seems a little extreme, and we need to come up with a better way of monitoring. And what we're saying is don't stop monitoring for cancer because they'll occur e even in patients where the fibro scan is F2, we've seen cancers, I think clearly was wrong. But the problem with the EGD is a problem with how do you get our dear friends to help um, doing endoscopy. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to do at least one. Because if they have varices, they need to be monitored carefully. Right, well the assumption would be that uh, you know when, when treatment is done and they actually do get to GI, then they'll go ahead and do it and it's their problem. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how soon, uh, how, how long should a person be NPO before doing a fibro scan? So we think Fi three hours three. Okay. is enough. 
but uh, I haven't done, I haven't seen a study of three hours versus 12. Other questions on monitoring per se? Maybe next year we'll have answers. Yeah. It's like the H world of HIV in general, right? Yes. Hold on, let me get slide that you talked about patients with small esophageal varices. Sorry, I can't hear you. Can you talk in the microphone? Yes. With the patients that have small esophageal varices that you talk to be monitoring every two years, if they are on a non-selective beta blocker, um, we haven't been following up with EGDs if they are compliant and on optimal therapy. It, do you still repeat EGD them if they're on a non-selective? It is still recommended that you repeat the EGD on a non-selective beta blocker. And how, <coughs> how often with small If they're ones? compensated two to three years, if they're decompensated every year, 